Well, let's, let's go ahead and start our study. And um, what we have to do is we have to take a step back because I realized that we didn't finish all of chapter one. We went on to chapter two, but we were missing out on verses 18 through 20 in chapter one. And they're, they're very important, very practical. And so I want to go over those today. So I'm going to read the text and then uh, I'll pray. All right. It's first Timothy chapter one, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercies. Father, I pray, would you please bless this time? Would you please help us to understand your word, to speak your word? Father, I pray for these men and their families. Oh, dear God, bless them with grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. Lord, that they make great progress in their love for you and in their sanctification. Oh, dear God, that they be examples to their their wives, their children, their churches, that they walk in the simplicity of the gospel. And oh, dear God, keep them. Keep them, Lord, in this world so dark and twisted. We are like sheep among wolves and we have no power or cleverness in ourselves. Our only hope is that you stand guard over us as the great shepherd of the sheep. So, dear Lord, please do, please help us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's look at at verse 18. And, and as we go through this, if you have any questions, just uh, raise your hand or interrupt me. So in verse 18, he says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Now, he wrote this specifically to Timothy, but it has direct application to every one of us who claim to be called of Christ into the ministry. And here we can see in this entire text how solemn, how serious um, this matter of being called into the ministry actually is. This is not a light thing. It's a dangerous thing. It is dangerous not to heed the call, not to obey the call to enter into the ministry. It is dangerous to take the mantle of ministry upon ourselves lightly. 
And it's dangerous to enter into the ministry when you haven't been called to be there. And so all of it is very solemn. We have the most gracious Lord. I have walked with him for 35 years. He is kind and gracious and merciful. But make no mistake, the one who walks through the the candlesticks, his eyes are like flaming fire. And um, it's a serious matter. So he goes on and he says this command. Now, what is he talking about in verse 18? This command, the word can mean mandate or charge. Okay, it's something it's an it's something that comes to you from an authority and it comes with an obligation. Once that command is given to you, you are responsible and you will be held accountable on the day of judgment. Now, this command here in this case, even though he calls it command, it is a reference to the task or ministry that is described in verses three through seven. It is a command with regard to the gospel ministry and specifically the caring for this church, which involves a couple of things. One, teaching the flock. The other, protecting the flock from heresy. Now, this is something that's very, very important. Um, There are some men who teach and teach and teach and teach. and, And they're wonderful at that ministry. But they don't realize that today in this modern world, with so many winds of doctrine that are wrong, that are available to true believers, especially on the Internet, they don't realize that there is also a need for not only teaching God's people, but protecting God's people. Now, if someone really knows the truth, they will be protected. And that's what a lot of teachers will say. I just teach the truth and that will protect the people. Well, that is true. That's foundational. But we see in the New Testament, we see Paul Peter also warning the church with regard to false teachers and exposing the error of those false teachers. And therefore, you and I should do the same thing. Now, I believe that if it's 50% exposition and teaching and 50% correction or fighting heresy, you're probably off balance. No, not probably. You are off balance. Because when we we look at the New Testament, we don't see 50% teaching and 50% going after heretics. We don't see that. We see the great majority of the New Testament is dedicated to teaching. Now, just hold your place here for a minute in 1 Timothy. And let's go to Jude for just a moment. And here in Jude, I believe that we have the perfect balance with regard to teaching and fighting heresy. He says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. 
Now, I want you to see what's going on here. His purpose in writing this letter and in his ministry was to do what? It was to teach people about our common salvation. It was to teach them about salvation. That was his primary job. And that's the primary job of you and me. But then he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there are times when we have to not depart from teaching because even in exposing heresy we must teach. But there are times when we must directly tackle certain heresies that may be entering into the church. But it's not our majority job. It's not our primary task. Also something here that's very, very important. What is the standard for determining whether or not something is heresy or something is true? It's by comparing it to the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, I want to go back to something that maybe you've heard me say several times. If you're, if you're around me much, you will hear this a lot, especially if you're young. Um, if, if, you, if you stand me beside maybe a well-known um, false teacher or something, and you said to him, why do you teach what you teach? And he might say, well, because bless God, that's what my Bible says. <laughs> now, if you ask me, why do you teach the opposite? I may say, well, because that's what the Bible says. And both those statements are not really true. Uh, what we're saying to you, our answer is, that's what I believe the Bible says. Now, the Bible is infallible and inerrant. The problem is the interpretation of Paul Washer is not infallible or inerrant. No interpretation of any man is infallible or inerrant. And so the question is, after we've done our work in the original languages, after we've looked at context and everything else, after we've compared scripture with scripture, what can we do? Well, the Bible is the supreme standard according to the Westminster Confession. But there are subordinate standards. And, and what are those? The great catechisms and, and confessions of the faith. Um, the doctrine of the church. Now, when I say the doctrine of the church, I have to be careful because I'm not talking about Catholicism. I'm talking about the doctrine of men down through the ages who believed in the infallibility, inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, yes, in, in some ways they departed it from each other in certain things, but by looking at them, especially the richness of the Reformed tradition, the Puritans, even the early evangelicals, by looking at that, we can see, you know what? I'm in the center. I'm in the center with those godly men and women who walked before me. Okay? So, let's go back to 1 Timothy. And we see that um, in verse 18, this command is referring to the, the command that has to do with ministry. Carrying out 
his ministry. You know what? Um, I had a father that was pretty tough. And uh, if you said something like, I can't go on because I'm tired, he would say, I don't care. It's raining. Get wet. It's snowing. It's freezing. Then get cold. Um, you know, I'm afraid of the bull out in the field. Well, cease with your fear and go out there and tackle it. I mean, the, the thing about it is, in the ministry, we have been given a command to minister. And, and there's just no excuse. There's just no excuse. We must go on. And, and listen to me, young men. It is going to be difficult. Ministry is, there are times where, yeah, things are going right. And it seems like there's bearing fruit. And then there's times where it's just all out war. And, and you don't know if you can keep going. You just don't know. You, you want to give up. You want to quit. You want to drop your sword in anger and just run away. But we don't have that luxury. Now, another thing that will step in in a young man's ministry is this. You ask him, why did you quit? And he said, well, everyone let me down. So what he's basically saying is my quitting is an appropriate response to the way everyone treated me. Do you see? But the problem is there's someone who treated you well and you have no reason for letting them down. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if, if I were to pastor all of you guys, there would probably be a time where I'd say, you know what, they've let me down and I'm quitting. Yeah, but you guys aren't the ones who commanded me to the ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ commanded me to minister and he never lets me down. Do you see? It's the same way. Let me give you just a little side note here. It's the same way with loving your wife. You see, you can say most of our bad behavior with our wives is the result of the fact that somehow we believe they let us down. And because they let us down, then we don't obey the commands of Christ with regard to them because they don't deserve it. They deserve our disobedience, we think, in our twisted little minds. But the fact of the matter is Jesus Christ never deserves our disobedience because he never lets us down. You see? So we have been commanded to enter in to the ministry. Now, another thing he says, this command I entrust to you. It literally means to place something beside someone. So it's like you're taking a certain thing and you're putting it beside someone saying, this is now yours. This is now your responsibility. You watch for this. I'm taking my hands off of it. So imagine that you had, um, let me see if I can find an illustration. Imagine we have local police and we have federal police. So let's say that the local police capture a federal criminal. And they've got him in their jail. And, and they're nervous because they don't want to lose this guy. So one day the federal police show up and they hand that prisoner off to him. And when they hand that prisoner off to them, then they sigh a sigh of relief. Okay? 
It's no longer our responsibility. It's the responsibility of the federal authorities. Okay? And now the federal authorities are the ones that have to really take care that this this man does not escape, that he does not hurt someone else, and they have to deliver him over to the court. And so we have had the ministry placed beside us. It's been deposited to us. We're entrusted with it. So figuratively, this word means to deposit as you would deposit a trust in someone. It's to commit something to one's safety, to commit something to one's administration or stewardship. Now, as you know, Jesus Christ makes a lot of references in the New Testament to stewardship. And sometimes the parables seem even quite severe. That he expects us by his grace, in his power, according to his word, to take that deposit he has given us and not only carry it and protect it, but also develop it, to refine it. And each of us doing our or carrying out our stewardship, each of us leads to the advancement of the church. Now, that's primarily for ministers, but you can also share this with your congregation because there's a sense in which every believer, according to Ephesians chapter four, is under a stewardship with regard to the gospel to use their gifts in the church in a way that will advance the church. There's an illustration I will do sometimes in a lighter setting uh, to teach this point. I will call a. You know, ask a a young boy usually to come to the front of the place where I'm speaking, you know, a nine-year-old boy (laughs) and uh, or something like that. And I'll I'll say in front of all the crowd. Now, here's something I want you to do. I want you to run all the way to the back of the room and then run back up here to where I am as fast as you can. And they say, as fast as I can. Yes, as fast as you can. I won't get in trouble. No, you won't get in trouble. And so they take off running as fast as they can. They touch the wall and they come all the way back to the front. Now, so everyone's laughing. And then I say, now I want you to hold one leg with your hand. I want you to pull back your heel and uh, hold one leg up. And I want you to do the same thing. And he does it. And of course, it takes him four times longer. He's jumping. He's sweating. He's wore out. Then he comes back to the front and I tell him, now hold that leg up. Now I want you to grab the other leg, the other foot with the other hand and do the same thing. And usually he'll look confused for a while. Like if I do that, I'll fall down. But here's what I want you to. Here's what I tell the church. I just took away two members and it totally incapacitated him. Not only could he not go as fast, he couldn't go at all. That's how important our ministries are. And that's how important the ministry of every individual in the church actually is. And um, so he's saying, I entrust Paul saying, look, I entrust this ministry to you, but it's something even bigger. I entrust this people to you. 
I entrust this bride to you. I entrust, let's make it even more extreme. I entrust this manifestation of the bride of Christ to you. Now, that's an amazing statement. Uh, The most precious thing I could turn over to you to guard and to care for would be my wife and my children. And both of those are great examples of what happens when we're called into the ministry. A wife, someone else's wife, the Lord's wife is entrusted to us. The Lord's children are entrusted to us. You know, um, Americans are always, you know, talking about how tough they are and they'll fight you and all this other stuff. I don't want to go down that road, but I can tell you this, even as an old, weak man, I would do everything in my power to stop you from hurting my wife and hurting my children. You see. They're precious to me. Well, the church that's been given to you is precious. And, 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 and here's something very important. I hope that you love the church and not just your ministry. I hope you love the church and not just your vision for the church. Very, very important. So we've he um, now look at verse 17 for a moment and you'll see that it adds a great deal of um, solemnity to it. He says now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy. You know, imagine receiving a stewardship before the very throne of God. And you're to carry out that stewardship no matter what it costs you until the day he calls you home. That's perseverance, brethren. So let's go on. He says, this command I entrust to you Timothy, my son. There is so much precious here. So, so many precious truths. First of all, it's one thing for a king to give a difficult charge to one of his subjects. It is quite another for a father to give a difficult charge to his son. You know, over the years, you're going to have the opportunity to be the spiritual father to other young men. You better take that charge with a great deal deal of fear and trembling. And treat them not as students. This is one of the reasons for the failure sometimes of seminaries. Um, I'm all for seminaries and uh, I know many, many godly seminary teachers. But sometimes the class is so big and there's so many people being run through there that it's really hard to be a father. That's why I'm for um, a theological education that doesn't look like mass production. That's why I think the best place for theological education is pastors pouring their lives into young men and supplementing that with seminary training and academics. 
And so he says, my son. Now, this charge is authoritative, but it is full of empathy. It is full of empathy and carries with it the guarantee that Paul will be praying. He will be with Timothy through his praying, through his prayers. Um, I, you know, every day here at HeartCry, um, we're dealing with um, brothers and sisters in places where they are suffering terribly. Afghanistan, uh, China, North Korea, the Middle East. I just watched yesterday as a man was, was burned while the crowds were shouting on a videotape. And so our lives in comparison, well, there, there is no comparison. Our lives have been easy. But each of us have and will go through trials that at least for us are devastating. And if people aren't praying for us, we won't make it. How many times does the Apostle Paul ask people to pray, 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 pray? And so when we take a son in the ministry, we should do so with empathy. We should treat him like a soldier. And yet in prayer, our hearts should be full of empathy, pouring out before the Lord because he's going to suffer. If he goes into the ministry, he's going to suffer. Paul tells us that everyone who seeks to be godly in this life will suffer. But how much more? Those who proclaim the gospel. And I think that we're seeing in the West, the United States, Canada, Europe, that there's something of a hangman's noose that's being maybe tightened around our neck. There are great things on the move. And we must be prepared. To suffer. And we must be prepared to watch even the young ministers. Whom we have trained in into whom we've poured our lives, we must be willing to let them go. And serve the Lord. I said many, many years ago, probably didn't know what I was saying. But if one of my sons is called to go into a place where he will most certainly die. I'll carry his bags to the border. I'll hold him for a moment and pray for him. And then I'll send him across and watch him die. It's the gospel, man. It's Jesus Christ. You don't do these things for temporal rewards, but for glory, honor and immortality in the presence of God. You do it for him. You stand fast. Now, I have sons in the ministry that when they hurt, I hurt. But how much more when we hurt? Does God show mercy? Does God have compassion? Does Christ have compassion? And the spirit, when we can't even begin to speak 
We don't even know what we need. The Spirit searches our hearts, searches our minds, and communicates perfectly to the Lord our need. If you will hold on to Christ, He will care for you. And when you can't hold on, He'll hold on to you. So, He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. A lot's been done with this passage. Let's let's kind of break it apart and see what's going on. First of all, Paul was not asking Timothy to do anything outside of his calling as a minister of Christ. That's what you need to see. He's letting him know. You know that this ministry has been given to you, not just by me, but by God. You see, very, very important. There is an expanded explanation in 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 first Timothy 414. Let, let's go there for just a moment. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now, what's going on there? This is very, very important. I just want to read something I've written here. Timothy was gifted by the Spirit for the gospel ministry to understand and preach the truth and to discern and refute error. He was called into this ministry by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but he was made capable to carry out this ministry by the Holy Spirit. And this gift that was given to him, this stewardship, has a threefold confirmation. Now, when you're in the midst of the battle, you're in the midst of the battle. You need confirmation. <laughs> Sometimes you're going to doubt that you're called. Sometimes you're even going to doubt on purpose because you don't want to be called. But you need confirmation in the middle of the battle. And so, here's some of the things that I want to say. First of all, this gift was confirmed by prophecy. What does that mean? The act of prophesying did not convey the gift to him, but simply confirmed it. So there was... There was a real prophecy, not what they call prophecy today. But there was a real speaking forth, probably among the elders, with regard to Timothy. Now, this gifting was confirmed also by the laying on of hands by the elders. First Timothy 414. That's another confirmation. So godly, godly men. They observed Timothy's life and they were able to confirm that he not only had the qualities of a minister as laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but he had the actual calling. They could see it in him. Now, that doesn't mean they had dreams and visions and that doesn't mean that they somehow discerned a small, still voice. It means they observed him. They tested him. They watched his life. They saw the conviction 
of a minister. They saw the giftings of a minister. And so it was confirmed by the laying on of hands. And this gift was also confirmed by the Apostle Paul himself. If you look over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it is, verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we see that he was confirmed. Prophecy confirmed it. The observation of elders studying his life confirmed it. And then in this case, something that you and I don't have, an apostle confirmed it. But what have we been given to confirm? I mean, what, what is it? And some people will just say, well, it's, it's, you know, my ordination confirms it. Men studied my life and saw that I qualified as an elder. Well, that's not enough. And I'm going to show you why. Let, let's go for a minute over to 1 Timothy. Back to 1 Timothy. Chapter 3. And here we have the qualifications that should be found in an elder. Now, I've heard people say, well, I'm an evangelist and I don't need to meet these qualifications. That's nonsense. And I'll tell you why. Um, what Paul is describing here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is that he's describing a mature Christian. <laughs> and what he's saying is elders must be mature men. They must be mature and faithful Christians. And you say, okay, someone can observe my life and say you have all the qualities of an elder. You should be an elder or you should be an evangelist or a teacher. Well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. If you look in 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So it's not just a sense of I qualify because I know many men who aren't in the ministry who are far more godly, far more qualified than I am. Layman. Very much so. One of the godliest men I ever knew ran a, uh, a gravel pit, a rock pit, and drove big trucks in and out of it and dug with a crane. But he's one of the godliest men I ever met. He qualified as an elder, but there's more. Did he aspire to it? Was there a God-given aspiration? Not just a fleeting or momentary desire, not just some fickle whim, but an honest, enduring aspiration. Now, we go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll show you what I mean. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Now, in verse 16, God put an earnestness in the heart of Titus. And so it's not just some, uh, oh, I would like to be an elder. But it is a, a deep, 
conviction and earnestness and impulse. I must minister. If I do not minister, I will be in disobedience. It is that great a conviction because listen, listen, men, be very, very careful. You young men, you listen to me right now. Um, in some ways, the radical charismatic movement has robbed us of even our reformed heritage. And you say, well, what do you mean? I will read reformers. I'll read Calvin. I'll read early Baptists like John Gill, um, the Puritans. Um, and you can see this in Ian Murray's book, Pentecost Today, which I highly recommend, and it's back in print. They didn't have to deal with the heresies that we have to deal with today regarding the Holy Spirit. And so they talked with much greater freedom than we do with regard to the Holy Spirit. And they were utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Not all this silly stuff you see today. But they believed that a man would be called. They believed that if you want to use this terminology, that a man was anointed. That a man was prepared. And so th this is very, very important to rediscover in our lives. A God called man. A God called man. Now, you can see here the wonderful balance in the scriptures. Because I remember one time I looked out my front door in Peru, the front window, and there was a man. Every house had a little garden, you know, just with flowers in it. And so did I about maybe two meters by four meters, you know, out in front of the house. And this man was walking around in my garden and he was making strange noises. And I walked out there. He was kind of walking robotic and making strange buzzing noises. And I said, can I help you? in Spanish, and he told me um, God had sent him and he was being led of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And I, I shared with him, I said, Sir, you may be led of the Spirit, but it's debatable just how holy that Spirit is. And so there are all kinds of men who think they're led of the Spirit or maybe even aspire to the ministry. And what protects us here are godly elders and watching their life not just listening to their sermons. Sermons are pretty easy compared to life. Watching their life. And not just in the church, men, but with their family, with their wives, with their children. Now, he says here, um, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Now, what is he saying? Well, let me read. Endurance in the ministry is founded upon and strengthened by the certainty that God has called a man. He has sensed the inward call and it has been confirmed by the church and its elders. Do you have that? Do you have a sense of God has called me and I must Obey. Have godly men watched your life and been able to confirm it? Because you will not last without that. Because look, look what he says here. He says, by them you fight the good 
fight. The word fight here means to engage in war or to battle as a soldier. My father was in World War II. And uh, in that war, he had to do some terrible, terrible things. There's nothing beautiful about war. Many have said that it's like hell on earth. And uh, it affected him. We, we raised cattle, and I remember as a little boy, um, one of our cattle got very sick and we had to put him down. We had to shoot him. My dad handed me the gun. He'd had enough of killing. Battles are horrible. And Paul could have used another word here. He could have said something else, you know, the athletic competition or something. But he didn't. He called it warfare. And it is a fight. What do we fight with? Well, first of all, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and mights and dominions. The devil would swallow you and me in a fraction of a second. If it were not for the power of Christ, that's how deadly it is. So there's there's the spiritual warfare, but then there's the I think equally terrible warfare within our struggle against sin, against personal sin for which we are responsible against a lack of Christ like character. I was thinking the other day just how wonderful it will be. I can't even imagine. To have a thought. That is free from sin to have an act, an action, a deed that is free from sin. And then there's battles even with other Christians. Immaturity. And then you go from there. Hurt people who sometimes will lash out like an animal because they're so hurt. And then there's unbelieving people. That will will lie about you and twist things about you and do everything they can possibly do. They are hell bent on destroying you. There's just battles everywhere. And in the midst of them. One of the foundational truths we must go back to is I don't have the luxury of quitting. God has called me. I'm a soldier. Keep going forward, keep going forward. I have uh, read and seen and about I think it was the battle in uh, Stalingrad or whatever. Uh, one of the famous battles in World War Two where. Russian soldiers are going across this river to take back a certain city that the Nazis had conquered. And if they went forward, they were pretty much killed. But if they retreated, they were shot by their own soldiers. There was just no retreat. We can't retreat. We have to keep going forward. So the Christian life in ministry is a fight. It's a war. And even though there's sometimes, you know, moments of peace, <laughs> it's basically a lifetime war. You know, sometimes I sit there and go, Lord, I'm 60. 
Can't I just kind of maybe, you know, walk the rest of the way without many problems? Um, the answer is, is no. I think it was Dr. John Piper who said, um, and I don't want to misquote him, but I think he said, you're either coming out of a trial or going into a trial. And I guess you could say the same thing. You're either coming out of a war or walking into one. Um, so, um, there's, there's many ways though. Now here's something I want to teach you. That's just kind of old man stuff. Um, it's out of Joshua eleven 23. I'll just read it to you. Um, because the Christian life, sometimes there's a lot of things that go on in the book of Joshua that can relate to our Christian life, our pilgrimage, our fight. In Joshua eleven twenty three, it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Joshua was an old man when that happened. He served his generation. He fought battle after battle after battle, and then he was gathered to his fathers. That's us. That's us. And then the battle is not only like, like when we talk about the battle, a lot of times people think, well, you know, yeah, the Great Commission, we've got to advance it. We've got to keep going forward. But what I want you to see is the battle is not, first of all, the Great Commission. It's not, first of all, the ministry. The battle is, first of all, conquering the sin in our own life. Fighting against sin. Knowing. Remember, with the case with Israel, every, every people that they allowed to stay in the land, every every Canaanite that they allowed to stay in the land eventually came back and brought about their destruction. Every sin we do not kill will eventually come back and bite us. And and, you know, the Puritans, especially John Owen and others were very serious about killing sin, kill sin or it will kill you. And so there's a sense of a battle against sin, but it's not just negative. There is a battle for sanctification. There is a battle for Christ likeness. The greatest limitations in my ministry are not my gifts. I've been able to know some men in this world that were so gifted. It was just it's just incredible. I mean, they are so God has given them so many gifts. And sometimes you wish, oh, I wish I was more gifted. But giftedness is not my problem. It's a lack of Christ likeness that's my problem. That's always the problem. Even everything the devil does is not necessarily my problem. My problem is my lack of Christ likeness. And furthermore, it's my wife's problem. What does my wife need from me? She needs me to be, be different. She needs me to be more like Christ. What's the greatest gift I can give my children or the church? 
a Paul Washer who's less like Paul Washer and more like Jesus Christ. That's what I can give them. Do you see that? And the battle is is hard. And men, listen to me. Um, we have to battle in the ministry. We have to battle for souls. We have to preach and counsel and pray. But none of it really matters if we're not battling for Christ likeness. It's so very important. And, you know, I said something a while back in a conference and I'm going to say it again, you know, every week, check your amount of time you spend looking at your phone. And then compare that to the amount of time you pray and study God's word. It's not just preparing sermons. It's studying the word to be changed, to be transformed. Ministers don't fall. Ministers don't get in trouble because they're not gifted. Ministers get in trouble because they're not like Christ. Ministers are not effective because they're not like Christ. Now, another thing about it is in Joshua 513. Hold your place in in, uh, first Timothy. And uh, I want us to go there to Joshua five, verse 13. It says, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Now, (laughs) the question is not, can I get the Lord to be on my side? Can I get the Lord to help me with my plans? That's not the question. The Lord doesn't change sides. So the question is not, can I get the Lord on my side to help me with the ministry? The question is, if you'll get on the Lord's side. Don't try to do something that you've invented and then get the Lord to help you with it. What does the Lord want you to do and just go about doing it? And if you will, he will be on your side because you're on his. And how do you do that? Well, pray and but here's the problem. People say pray and then they wait for some mystical message. Let me don't answer this question, but I want you to think about it. How many of you have gone through the Old and New Testament and pulled out every reference to what it means to be a minister of God? Or a pastor. And then just lined them all up, grouped them in categories and looked at it. If you want to be on the Lord's side, then find out what the Lord commanded his ministers to do. And then put your head down and do it. Don't deviate from it. So let's go to verse 19. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have uh, rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. There's two key elements here in fighting the good fight. 
Two key elements. First, holding firmly to the faith and a good or undefiled conscience. So if you want to truly fight the good fight, you need to hold on to the faith and you need to nurture and protect a good or undefiled conscience. So let's look at that. Literally, he says, holding faith, trusting exclusively in God's revelation as opposed to this, the speculation of men. The first thing that you must do. Listen, you cannot do what's right in your own eyes. You cannot. Well, you can, but it's not going to go well. Find out what God wants you to do. Most young ministers, what they'll do is there'll be some prominent guy who planted a big church with 10,000 people and then writes a book on how he did it. And then you take that book and you read it and you try to do the same thing. That's going to get you nowhere. What you need is the scriptures, scriptures, scriptures. You want to hold on to the faith as it is revealed in the scriptures. Submit your mind, your conduct, your ministry to the scriptures. Hold on to the faith. In particular here, because we see that there are those teaching things that distract from Christ. Holding on to the faith is holding on to the gospel. The person of Christ, the gospel, not as the only message God has ever given, but by far the preeminent message that God has given. So trusting exclusive exclusively in God's revelation as opposed to the speculations of men. And we do that by holding on to the scriptures and more specifically holding on to the gospel and holding on to Christ. Now, also keep or holding a good conscience. We need to keep a good conscience. How do we do that? It results from a sincere obedience to God's revelation and brokenness over disobedience. A sincere conscience doesn't mean that we must be perfect, because if that was the case, none of us would have a sincere conscience. The idea is that we really believe this stuff and submit our life to it. And when we do not, when we fail to submit our life to it, we're broken over our failure and we confess it. We are genuine, transparent men. That's what it means. This is not hypocrisy. This is not superficiality. This is not just playing along. We're not little minister boys who want to go out and have a fun church. We are men who in some degree, although joyful, we are solemn men. And we seek to walk with an undefiled conscience. We are learning the, the will of God. We are becoming increasingly conformed to the will of God. And we are broken when we see active departures from the will of God. You see now. Three times in the pastoral epistles, faith and a good conscience are linked together. Faith and a good conscience in first Timothy one five. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here in this text, 1 Timothy 1.19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their conscience no longer matters to them. It no longer matters. And we'll talk more about that. And then 1 Timothy 3.9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, holding to the gospel, the revelation of the great mystery of God, holding to that sincerely, not departing from it. So let me say this. It is not just the correct knowledge of doctrine, but the submission of our lives to that doctrine. In other words, we live in an honest relationship with what we profess. We are striving for obedience and confessing and repenting for our disobedience. Do, do you see that? Blessed are those who mourn. Or we go to Isaiah where he talks about the contrite spirit, the broken heart. That's part of having a sincere conscience. And it will be until the day we die and are perfected. Sometimes I see more sincerity, more proof of sincerity in the way a man will be broken over his sin and confess it than I do over watching his obedience. When he is confronted by his sin, he doesn't explain it away. He doesn't say if I or I may have or explain it away in some other way, but he's directly hit with it. He confesses it. Because he wants to maintain his communion with God. He wants to reflect the faith. Now, he goes on here in verse 19 talking about faith and a good conscience, and he talks about some who have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, how have they done that? Well, in this context, it's this way. They've turned aside from the simplicity of trusting in God's revelation, God's word, the apostolic teaching and walking in simple obedience to it. That's what they've done. They're shipwrecked. In Colossians, we can see it very, very clearly and that they're not holding on to the head. They're not holding on to Christ. They become mesmerized with all kinds of things. And they can even be good things. But a good thing becomes heresy when it's lifted above Christ and his gospel. Now, I may have shared this with you, but in 1 Timothy uh, 4, verse 1, you know, we have that passage where it just sounds like verses 1 and 2, he's given us an introduction and then he's going to spring on us the Antichrist or something. I mean, he doesn't use this kind of language anywhere else in his epistles. He says, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And so you're thinking, wow, what an introduction. Paul obviously is going to go on in the next verses and talk about the Antichrist or something. But what does he do? He talks about men who say abstain from food and marriage. 
It's like, Paul, really? But I, I think the issue here is this. Any principle, even a biblical one, any standard of conduct according to the will of God, anything, even biblical, that we put in place of Christ and his gospel immediately becomes a doctrine of demons. And I see this. I see this in all of us at times. We can we can get carried away with something. How do we know that we're not suffering shipwreck? Well, again, we could go to Ephesians, we could go to Colossians, and we see it's because we're holding on to Christ. We're holding on to the gospel. We're holding on to scripture. We're believing, we're trusting, we're relying upon. And then we're seeking to grow in sanctification. The word rejected here is a strong word. It means to use force in pushing or thrusting someone or something away or aside. So it's not just like you've become apathetic toward the gospel or toward Christ or the simplicity of the gospel, but you're pushing it away for something else. The same word is used in Acts 7:27 with regard to Moses. It says, but the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, pushed Moses away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Who gave you the authority? It's the pushing away. And in this case, of an authority. It's pushing away scripture. It's supplanting it with some other authority. And that is happening today among you young guys like crazy. It really is. All the stuff that's gone on for the last 15 years of young men coming to so supposedly embrace the reformed faith, so much of it is just blown up into nothing. You see? Because the reformed faith is not primarily about uh, the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace are a result of the main doctrine of the Reformed faith, which is sola scriptura. Scriptures alone. In every aspect of our life, seeking to conform our thoughts, our conduct, everything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says they've pushed that away. They've rejected it. It's not just passive unbelief or the state of being downcast, but an active rejection, even a hostility toward the truth. And we're seeing that in droves in America right now. Throughout history, some of the greatest antagonists or enemies to Christianity have been those who once actively professed it. That is true. That is true. Now, the phrase suffer shipwreck is also very strong. They have shipwrecked upon the shoal or reef of unbelief, doctrinal error, or besetting sin, sin they do not want to let go of, sin that is contradicted by the scriptures, but they love their sin more than they love God. All shipwrecks just about occur on one of these reefs. Let me repeat it. Unbelief. Unbelief. 
I, I don't think that we realize just how horrific an act of disobedience is unbelief. Because what we're saying, to not believe God is to, is to doubt what he says about his character. It's to doubt what he says about himself. It's to call God a liar. We see that in 1 John. It's to call him a liar. But then there is doctrinal error. You know, we live, I mean, it's unbelievable how Satan has groomed and prepared culture. I remember reading something years ago from C.S. Lewis, I think that he wrote in the 50s or something like that, about, you know, these professors that were beginning to say that, that words do not have intrinsic meaning. The meaning of a word depends on the way you feel about it. That started back then. Now, not only the world, but the church is filled with that. If you come to someone with a, a certain doctrine that that contradicts modern culture or a certain command, uh, you'll be met with, well, that's what you say it says, but that's not what it says to me. Now, you're not going to get over that hump, minister. You're not going to get over that hump by being smarter than everyone else. You're going to get over that hump by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, by preaching. You don't need to defend the word, as, Martin, as uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say. You don't have to defend the word any more than you have to defend a lion. Just let it out of its cage and it'll defend itself. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And, and realize this. Yes, the West is getting darker, but the darker it gets, the brighter the gospel will appear. In this first century world, we get an opportunity to act like first century Christians. Shining lights, shining lights. Now, Let's go on. Doctrinal error will lead to sin. I just want to say that. People say doctrine's not important. Well, it is. And uh, the Christian life is more than doctrine, but it is not less than doctrine. And that's very important to remember. Just like um, pastoring is not less than preaching, but it is more than preaching. You see, doctrinal error will lead to sin and sin will often lead to doctrinal error in order to justify a particular sin. People really don't have a problem with biblical doctrine at all until it contradicts their sin. That's when they have the problem. No one would have a problem with my preaching if I didn't preach against specific sins that they love. Do you see? So let me let me hit this part. Doctrinal error is often the result of seeking to make a truce with the world, our culture. The desire to be accepted by those in power, the desire to avoid persecution, the desire to appear academically and culturally sophisticated. All these things have become snares to men of God in the last few years. Now, they've always been, 
but it's becoming increasingly so. Let me go through this list again. Doctrinal error is often the result of seeking to make a truce with the world or its culture. You want to have peace. The desire to be accepted by those in power. Christians are not in power. Pagans are in power. Who are more zealous than any religious zealot you've ever seen. The desire to avoid persecution. I don't want to be persecuted. But remember, you and I have received a stewardship. We shouldn't be persecuted for ungodliness, but we shouldn't avoid persecution by means of compromising the truth. And then this is the big one, young men. This is big. The desire to appear academically and culturally sophisticated. So many men today work so hard. So many Christian men work so hard, it seems, attempting to prove to the world that they're not as stupid as the world thinks they are. I'm smart like you, but I'm also a Christian. You see, wanting to be able to dialogue, to reach across the aisle. Be very careful of this. It never, never, never goes well. Uh, uh, Dr. John MacArthur is one of the smartest men I know. One of the uh, best preachers I know. He can hang with anybody academically, but he has no desire for academic or cultural sophistication. Just preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. Another thing, speculation is often the result of wanting to avoid the simple truths of God's commands. You see, if you tell the world that God exists, they won't be mad at you. Because that doesn't demand anything from them. God, God exists. But when you tell them what God has said or what God has required, then they get mad at you. Why? Because now it impacts their life. And a righteous God is going to give them righteous commands, which they are going to hate because they're not righteous. Very important. William Hendrickson writes, if even literal shipwreck is agonizing, as Paul experienced many times, how much more to be feared is religious shipwreck? Brothers, I had the privilege of growing up in the faith with some of the what we called old school reform guys. There was nothing. They were Calvinist when Calvinism wasn't cool. They were men of God, men of prayer, dangerous men. Yeah. So. I want you to be very, very careful about thinking that about spending more time thinking about your hairdo, the tattoos on your arm and the cool clothes. I want you to think about sound theology, a godly life, intercessory prayer. Don't think so much about the way you present yourself to men 
Think more about the way you present yourself to God. Now, let's go to verse 20 in this rather long session. Uh, among these are Hymenus and Alexander. We know a little, we know very little about these men except what is revealed to us in this chapter, really. Their names appear possibly in other texts. Hymenus in, in 2 Timothy 2.17 and Alexander in Acts 19.34 and 2 Timothy 4.14, possibly. Uh, but we're not even certain that those are the same persons in each case. But let's look at, from this chapter, what would have been the error of these men? Where did they go wrong? Verse 6, they strayed from gospel priorities. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So they strayed from the gospel, the preeminence of the gospel. Verse 3, they taught strange doctrines. They probably tried to use biblical texts and Christian language to do it, but the fact of the matter is, it wasn't, there wasn't proper hermeneutics going on. It was contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 4, they paid attention to myths and endless genealogies. I'm amazed at how many Christians get caught up in crazy internet conspiracies. From everything to the government, to uh, the second coming of Jesus, I mean, it just goes on and on and on instead of studying Scripture. Are people who study the book of Revelation as though it was some kind of code book to tell us the day when Jesus comes back? So, and also, verse 6, they turned aside to fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. Just fruitless discussion. Verse 4, their teaching did not further the redemptive work of God in the church or the world by exhorting men to believe the gospel. Brethren, listen to me. Um, you want to preach so that you're actually teaching the men in the pew, the women in the pew, the children in the pew. If you want to do you know, very high technical things, then maybe you should uh, become a professor in a Ph.D. program. I have met men who had several Ph.D.s, I guess, and um, they couldn't communicate anything to the common man. But I've also met men with several Ph.D.s who knew how to take all that scholarship and all that knowledge and communicate it to both the great and the small. And they didn't leave them there with just a transmission of knowledge or facts. They moved them. They exhorted them. They urged them. They pleaded with them. Does your teaching result in people getting saved? Does your teaching result in saved people actually growing, becoming more Christ-like, more confident? Those are the questions. Look at the fruit. Never get down from the pulpit pleased because you think you did a good job. Because the goal of a sermon is not that. The goal of a sermon is were people moved closer to Christ? You see, 
where people that you want to see people grow. You want to feed them. You want them to grow. And I'm all about scholarship. I wish I was a better scholar. I wish I was a more highly trained scholar. But, oh, brothers. Be very careful that you're not working through some technical sermon on John Owen's doctrine of redemption when the people don't even have the most simple idea what you're talking about. Now, you need to read John Owen, trust me, and you need to preach like John Owen preached. But sooner or later, Owen himself, even the one of the most brilliant men would always, it's like you would walk into a clearing and everything you were confused about would be all of a sudden made clear. And so we teach in order for men to be changed. Verse five, the goal of their instruction was not love flowing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I heard someone say recently that they were asked to describe the Muslim faith in just one sentence. And he said this. Being angry for God. Well, if our doctrine is doing that, then it's not very good doctrine. If through our teaching, people are just being puffed up that they've got true knowledge while all those other evangelicals are silly. If our church walks around going, it's a biblical church because it does this or doesn't do something else. We're in trouble. The goal, the goal is what? Love flowing from a pure heart. And there again, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse seven, they sought to be teachers of the law, legalism. Even though they did not understand the true purpose or intent of the law. Both the law and, in my opinion, the wisdom literature, primarily the book of Proverbs, have the same purpose. The law shows you that you're sinful and drives you to Christ. The book of Proverbs shows you that you're a fool and drives you to Christ. But once they've driven you to Christ, then they can become your friend. Because if you're reconciled to God through Christ, then you'll be reconciled to the law and reconciled to Proverbs. And you can go back now and they can teach you so many beautiful things. Now, he says that Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. Oh, what strong language it is, but. The word handed over, paradidomi, is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, with regard to church discipline. One of the most important commands of our Lord that is not practiced, and oftentimes when practiced, it is not practiced biblically. That is, it's not practiced redemptively. Redemptively. Here we see the binding and loosening power of an apostle and to a limited degree, the congregation, as in Matthew 18. And we don't have time to go through that whole course. Maybe we will. But the idea of Christ has given the church a way to resolve its problems. And that is through loving, redemptive church discipline. And he says, we've handed them over to Satan. Why? So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, the word here means to vilify, defame, revile, speak evil, to speak impiously, especially with regard to God. 
We have to be careful because the word was used so many different ways in in the New Testament, in the time of Christ. They were speaking against God, whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether just regard to his person or, or with regard to his will, with regard to his revelation. They had blasphemed, possibly by teaching another gospel, as we saw alone. The gospel is the greatest revelation of God and of God's purpose. Thus, one of the strongest blasphemies a person can commit, or in other words, one of the most harsh ways in which you can speak against God is not to give Christ and the gospel preeminence. Now, here's what I want you to see, that they be taught not to blaspheme. Paul turns them over to Satan for what purpose? It's a redemptive purpose that they be taught, that they see their error, that they be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I want to look at two purposes really quick, because I know we've gone too long, of church discipline. Church discipline is practiced, first of all, as a protective measure to protect the church. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So, you see, one of the purposes is if you let sin take root in the church. Now here, very important, all believers sin. But there's a difference between brokenness, repentance, and someone who sets their face against God in open sin, pure rebellion, without, without brokenness or confession or repentance. So it has a, it has a protective purpose to protect your church. But it also has a redemptive purpose with regard to the sinner. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in the spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's always redemptive. Now, let me say something before I go about church discipline that I think is really important. People say, when does it begin? And I say, with, uh, with the way you preach the gospel. If you preach the true gospel, call men to repentance and faith. If you instruct men on the biblical grounds for assurance. If you practice true pastoral biblical principles in your evangelism, it will eliminate a lot of church discipline later. Another way that you practice church discipline is through expository preaching or preaching the scriptures. You're training them in righteousness. You're training them. You see, a child who is never instructed, is, is never corrected, is never rebuked, will have to be disciplined much more than a child who's been instructed, lovingly instructed, lovingly rebuked. Another thing, church discipline begins with correcting them, talking to them, counseling, counseling them. Church discipline does not begin with casting them out of the church.
That is the last final step. So we've gone through a lot today. I had to catch up um, and we'll start in um, on down in Second Timothy, our first Timothy chapter two sometime uh, when we get back next month, Lord willing. <laughs>